All right, good morning. It's 10 o'clock. Let's go ahead and start. We are in 2 Kings chapter 10. 2 Kings and chapter 10. Yes, sir. Second Kings chapter 10. We learned about the fear of the Lord last week. We've learned about the fear of the Lord before, but we learned about it last week too. And we learned that the fear of the Lord was and is a healthy fear for those who are God's enemies that they may repent. The fear of the Lord is a healthy fear for those who belong to Jesus through salvation, that we may be obedient to his word in our Christian walk. And the fear of the Lord is a proper motivator for the preaching of the gospel because the apostle Paul said he used it to persuade men. He said, knowing the terror of the Lord, therefore I persuade men. And in our text... The Sumerians, the Jezreelites, now Samaria, remember, was another name for the northern ten kingdoms. It was also a city, and so they're used interchangeably there. Sometimes it can be confusing, but Jezreel was the city we had in view that was located in Samaria, which is the northern kingdom. And in our text, the fear of Jehu... That these Sumerians had, these Jezreelites had, was also well-founded. It was proper that they be afraid. Because they said, Behold, two kings stood not before him. Talking about Jehu. How then shall we stand? Their fear of Jehu convinced them that if they tried to take him on, they would lose just like the two kings who tried to take him on at once. So let's continue in verse 4 with some more observations. We're in 2 Kings chapter 10, verse 4, if you've just tuned in. And I'm going to refer you to another place in the Bible. And this is the book of Jude. Now, you don't have to turn there, but if you'll write down the book of Jude, verses 5 through 7, as Jude gives three examples of how God judged the wicked, how he had already judged them, in fact. The the apostle wrote, I will therefore put you in remembrance, though ye once knew this, How that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed them that believed not. And the angels which kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation, he hath reserved in everlasting chains under darkness unto the judgment of the great day. Even as Sodom and Gomorrah in the cities about them in like manner, giving themselves over to fornication and going after strange flesh, are set forth for an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. So what a powerful precedence Jude set 
in reminding the readers of that epistle, and that's us too, that he wasn't making some empty threat on God's behalf. He was reminding them, putting them in remembrance of what God had already done to wicked people like the ones who were creeping into the assembly of the saints in that day. And so the warning wasn't empty. And the warning wasn't empty in our text. And may this warning from Jehu and the response by these Jezreelite men that says, Oh, he's serious. We can't take him on. Two kings tried and they lost. That's the same attitude people should have when they read the epistle of Jude. That, hey, God destroyed the unbelievers when they came out of Egypt. God has reserve these angels who kept not their first estate. These are the ones who rebelled with Lucifer. He's kept them or reserved them in everlasting chains. And the people in Sodom and Gomorrah, he judged them because of their wickedness. So with all of those things being said, when a preacher says on the authority of God's word, God will destroy the unbelievers then you better be like those men in Jezreel who say, boy, Jehu took on two kings who stood against him, they lost. And say the same thing about God because it's true. Those who take him on never win. And they're not going to win in the end. But man is hard-hearted, isn't he? You better be on the, the gospel side of the Lord before you die and before he comes again, if you're still here when he comes. And so that warning he gives is not to be taken lightly, but to be heeded. Now, let's look in verse 5. As these men have answered now and said, we, we can't stand before him, verse 5. And he that was over the house, and he that was over the city, the elders also, and the bringers up of the children, sent to Jehu, saying, We are thy servants. And we'll do all that thou shalt bid us. We will not make any king. Do thou that which is good in thine eyes. Now their first response, their response to that first letter, allowed them to receive a second letter. Had they sent Jehu an answer of rebellion... In other words, if their reply to Jehu's first letter would have been, huh, we'll do what we want. We'll make our own king. Bring it on, buddy. Let's see what you got. There wouldn't have been a second letter. But notice the key sentence in this return letter. We will not make any king. We will not make any king. This is a sign of submission to a proper authority. Their king was dead, and so was their queen. Ahab and Jezebel were done. We read about that. And recall with me what God commanded Elijah back in 1 Kings chapter 19, verses 15 through 16. 1 Kings 19, 15 through 16. Where it says, And the Lord said unto him, Go, return on thy way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when thou comest, anoint Hazael to be king over Syria, 
And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, shalt thou anoint to be king over Israel. Did you remember that? This Jehu was already anointed to be king over Israel while the king of Israel was still alive. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel-Meholah, shalt thou anoint to be prophet in thy room or in thy place. So we remember Elisha would take Elijah's place. God said all of that back in 1 Kings 19. And although these men of Jezreel, about whom we read, served that wicked house of Ahab, they were at least wise enough to recognize that if they anointed their own king over Israel, then they'd be voting against Jehu, whom God anointed, whom God had already commanded to be the next king over Israel. And Jehu was knocking at the door with judgment in his hand. He had a righteous sword, didn't he? A righteous sword that would slay all the ones who were condemned. And we know that's the house of Ahab. And we see that the house of Ahab includes more than the people who lived in Ahab's actual house. It was all who were submitted to him. And for these men to make themselves a king in the face of pending judgment was to rebel against righteousness. Against the prophecy that God had already made in Elijah's day. You know, that's what Satan has tried to do throughout the ages. God told Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3 that there would come a Savior. And if you've been through the Genesis to Jesus class, you know what that was. There in chapter 3 verse 15. That he would bruise that serpent's head and the serpent would bruise the Savior's heel. He'd be born of the seed of the woman, not of the seed of man. And yet ever since then, Satan has tried to cut off that seed. He's tried to destroy that seed. And God preserved that seed because he promised the Savior would come from a certain line of people. And it's never wavered. So people who say, even though God has prophesied and it will come to pass... That Jesus is the King of kings and Lord of lords. He already is. But when he comes back to redeem this cursed earth. Back to himself. To make an end of sin. To punish all the unbelievers. The devil and his angels in the lake of fire. And knowing all of that. There are still people who say we'll make our own king. We're not going to have him. We vote against God's prophecy. And that's foolish. And now back in our text there in verse 5, 2 Kings 10 verse 5. At the very end, these men say, after they've said, we're your servants, we'll do what you bid us, we won't make any king. They said, do thou that which is good in thine eyes. So they placed themselves completely at Jehu's mercy. That he would do that which was good in his own eyes. And as long as he would do that which was good in God's eyes, then whatever he did would be right. Verse 6. Now Jehu's going to write them again. They gave a good answer, didn't they? Then he wrote a letter the second time to them saying, If ye be mine, 
And if ye will hearken unto my voice, take ye the heads of the men your master's sons, and come to me to Jezreel by tomorrow this time. Now the king's sons, being seventy persons, were with the great men of the city which brought them up. Whereas the first letter Jehu wrote challenged the men of Jezreel to give him their best shot. Remember, he said, hey, you guys line up. You got chariots, horses, fence cities. You got armor. Come on. But the second letter caused him to seek an alliance with these men because they first said, we're not going to make a king. We're submitted to you. Whatever you want to do, whatever's right in your eyes, do it. That's total, absolute submission to a proper authority. This did not mean that Jehu was going to join them, but that they would join him. And there is a difference. And it's not really a subtle difference. You know, we don't bring God to our side in salvation. We don't say, well, now God's on my side. We're brought to his side through faith in his word, through faith in what he said about his son, the record he gave of his son who died for us. We're brought to his side in salvation by agreeing with that record. And we're brought to his side in sanctification, meaning to be made holy, by obeying his word. He conforms us more and more to the image of Christ. And, of course, one day we'll be brought to his side in glorification when we receive that glorified body, when Jesus gathers us to meet him in the air. And to be with him forever. No matter where he is, that's where we're going to be, isn't he? People say, well, will we be on earth? Will we be in heaven? Or will we be here or there? We'll be where the Bible says we'll be. Not everybody understands that. But let me tell you, wherever Jesus is, that's where I want to be. And that's where I'm going to be. The men of Jezreel would have to hearken, number one, they would have to hearken to Jehu's words. And two, they'd have to obey his command. And those kind of go together. If you hearken, that means you listen with an attitude of doing. You don't just say, oh, that sounds good, and go on your merry way. You listen so that when you're done listening and you understand what you heard, you may do it. That's a very simple principle. Jehu said the proof of their alliance with him would be shown how by beheading Ahab's sons, and coming to Jezreel, presumably with those heads in their possession. And that's what happened. So let's consider the significance of these men of Jezreel beheading their current masters. There were 70 sons. Now we've learned that the head controls the rest of the body. That's not too hard to understand, is it? In the head are the brain and the eyes and the ears and the nose and tongue and so forth. And without the head, the body does nothing but die and rot. You separate the head from the body, the body is, is done. And then we learn a spiritual truth about the head by looking at some New Testament passages, and I'll read one to you, where the Apostle Paul speaks of Jesus in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 18. 
Colossians 1 and verse 18, where Paul wrote, speaking of Jesus, and he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. Because the head on our body is the place from which the rest of our body receives orders, then our head has the preeminence on our body. It's in charge. The brain is in charge. No matter how big a man's muscles are or how skilled his hands and his feet are, without his head those things are dead and useless, aren't they? The head must be in charge. And in fact, only one head must be in charge. No other head may send the commands to my heart, my liver, my stomach, my organs, my muscles. Oh, somebody can tell me, hey, I want you to go over and, and do this or that. But my head has to agree with that, doesn't it? It has to say, all right, I'll go over and do that. So I give uh, voluntarily and involuntarily. My brain gives orders to different parts of my body to go and do these things. And there could only be one head or one king in Israel, not two and certainly not 70. So to submit to Jehu's rule, because God anointed him to be king, he told Elijah, he said, you anoint him to be king over Israel before the king of Israel had ever been killed. There must be no other king for these men to submit to Jehu's rule. He must be the head, the one giving commands to the rest of the body, the kingdom of Israel. And when a person puts his trust in Jesus for salvation, he is spiritually performing the equivalent of what these Jezreelite men were commanded to do physically. You know, a lost person serves a master, and that's the devil. And in fact, through the devil, that person serves many masters, such as their own happiness. How many times have you heard somebody say, my goal in life is just to be happy. Well, you know what? I'm about one of the happiest people you've ever met. But it's not because my goal in life is to be one of the happiest people you ever met. It's because Jesus is in control. And whatever you do to me in this lifetime can't knock me off my, my rail where I'm going to be with Jesus. And because of that, I don't have to get stressed out about a whole lot of things. Oh, there, there are times of stress, but it doesn't have to control my life. People will have other masters like their families. They say, well, I love my family above all. Well, let me tell you something. Nobody loves their family more than I do, but I love God more. And the only way I can love my family like I'm supposed to is to love God like I'm supposed to. If I don't, then I won't really love my family. I won't love my wife like I'm supposed to. Oh, everybody may say what a sweet couple they are and all of that. But without loving God first, none of that other falls into place. Some people's masters are their power. They say, well, I, <laughs> on Sundays, uh, you realize I am the, the president of the golf club over here and we we tee up at 10 o'clock on Sunday mornings and if I'm not there well I'll lose face go ahead help yourself that's your God you go do that 
politics. Sometimes people say, well, you know, I would go to church, but we have this or that going on, or I don't believe in this, or I don't believe in that. And you can just go on and on and on and name all of these masters that people have, but they all spring from one source, don't they? They spring from the devil. And when a person repents of his own way and puts his trust in Christ's finished work on the cross, then at that moment, he or she has accepted Christ as his head. All other heads, spiritually speaking, including his own, his own thoughts and opinions and desires and all that, all of them have been removed or, if you will, beheaded that Christ may be their one head. In Colossians chapter 3, verses 3 through 5, For ye are dead. Now, remember, Paul is writing to Colossian Christians here. Were they physically dead at that moment? No, else they couldn't read this wonderful letter he wrote them. So he was talking about spiritually speaking, for ye are dead and your life is hid with Christ in God. So the person, Andy Shepard, who was born in a hospital in Odessa, Texas back in 1965 and is, is now alive, that person, before he got to this place in life, put his trust in Jesus Christ. And so I changed spiritual heads. Mine became Christ and will always be. That's how I'm dead because my life is hid in Christ. He's not dead, but the old Andy is. When Christ who is our life, see that means we're not dead if we're in Christ because it says when Christ who is our life, not our death, when Christ who is our life shall appear, then shall ye also appear with him in glory. Mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Paul said to mortify those things. That word in the Greek language means to put them to death. And what better way to put something to death than to cut the head off, right? If that gives you a good visual. Put to death those things that are in that verse. Mortify them. Those things no longer control you. They don't have the authority to tell you what to do. If you do those things, you cannot say, well, my head Jesus Christ told me to do that. He gave me those orders because he didn't. You're just being disobedient. You don't belong to those wicked affections anymore. But because we live in the flesh, we still have them, don't we? They still attack us and still Satan still hollers at us and says, hey, You've been doing pretty good this week. Why don't you take a break from that Christian walk? Christ is your head. It's no longer Satan and it's no longer his devices. You have, spiritually speaking, beheaded those other masters in your life. Just like the men of Jezreel beheaded their masters to submit to Jehu. And one other thing worth mentioning here is that there are religious, unsaved people, and you've seen them, I hope you're not one, who have many masters. 
Now, their neighbors may say, oh, every Sunday we see them walk out with their, their Bibles and their suits and beautiful dresses on and all that, and they go to church and Wednesday night, and, you know, these people, I never see beer containers in their trash can, you know, all these things. And yet these people often are just as lost as they can be because they've never trusted in what Jesus did for them at Calvary, so they've never beheaded their own wicked masters. They still go to church, so attendance in church is their own wicked master. That controls them. They say, well, as long as I go to church, I should be fine. You can go to hell just as quickly from a church pew as you can from a bar stool or a prostitution house or the cell of a jail. You can go to, go to hell just as quickly from any of those. These people still go to church. They put money in the plate. So that's their God is their own financial contributions. Or they do good works. But they're leaning on something or someone besides the finished work of Jesus. And when you ask these people, how do you plan to enter the kingdom of God? I remember a long time ago, I heard a, a testimony from a man, and he said that he was in a store, and this little boy, who no doubt had some godly parents, this little boy came up to him and said, Hey, you going to heaven? And the man said, Yeah. And the little boy said, how are you going to get there? Well, that's about the best question you could ask somebody. I can't put it any better than that little boy did. Because that makes people tell you how they think they're going. You're not asking them, now, do you believe that Jesus died for your sins and all that? If you do that, you know what you're doing? You're supplying them the answer. And all they have to do is just go, oh, yeah, 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 I believe that. Make them tell you, how are you going to get there? But when you ask these people how they plan to enter the kingdom of God, do you know what they do? They tell you who their masters are. They say, I'm going to try to do better. Well, that person's master is his own self-will. Or another may say, well, I, I'm, when I die or before I die, I'm going to have the priest say the rosary over me and even give me my last rites in the hospital. Well, that person's master is religion, the religion of Cain. That person's master is a sinful priest. Now, these men of Jezreel were being told to do a very risky thing in the eyes of the world. They were being told to behead the sons of the king of Ahab. Now, that's pretty risky, isn't it? That there would be no king but the one whom God appointed. There was no going back. Once they beheaded those masters. Now it says in verse 6, there at the end of the verse, Now the king's sons, being seventy persons, were with the great men of the city, which brought them up. That meant they had their own entourages. And this made the risk even greater because the sons of Ahab were not only many, but they were well attended and well guarded. And so not only were the Jezreelite men told to behead their own masters, they were told to do so, at least implied, by disregarding the popular opinion of those around them and probably some type of physical resistance. Jehu didn't say, hey, 
if you guys can overpower the great men who are with the sons of Ahab, try to bring me some of their heads. He said, no, you bring their heads, every one of them. Cut their heads off. No excuses. This is another point worth mentioning. When a person is led by the Holy Spirit to put their faith in Christ, not only are they being commanded, in a sense, to behead their former masters, but also to disregard the opinion and even the resistance of the great men around them. You know the leaders of the religion of Cain, and many of them wear these beautiful robes on mornings such as this, and get way up in high pulpits so they can look down over us peons. And you know why we have a pulpit up here? So you can see. That's the only reason. It's the only reason it's higher than the rest of the church is so you can see. <laughs> That's it. But these leaders of the religion of Cain will give you plenty of reasons to avoid believing in the gospel of Jesus Christ alone for salvation. Most of them will say, oh, yes, yes, it's, we believe that too. And what do they do? They tell you, we haven't beheaded all of our masters, though. We have some other things that, that we want you to do. You know, the Pharisees in the Bible said or indicated to us that their master was the Old Testament law including physical circumcision. The religious counterfeiters today will tell you that you can keep one foot in the world and one foot in the church and that God will understand. Or they'll tell you it's, it's racist to believe that Jews have to believe on Jesus rather than their own religious ways to be saved. So a person has to be willing to set aside all of those people, all of those excuses, all of those things that they may trust in Jesus. And to trust in Jesus is to trust in nobody else and in nothing else. To trust in Jesus is to have him as your head, to behead all others, spiritually speaking. I have to say that. Because I don't know how far somebody might take that. Brother Andy said, go cut people's heads off. No, I didn't. We're teaching a spiritual truth here. In John chapter 5, verses 41 through 47, John 5, verses 41 through 47, Jesus said, and he's speaking to the Jews, I receive not honor from men, but I know you that ye have not the love of God in you. I am come in my Father's name, and ye receive me not. If another shall come in his own name, him ye will receive. How can you believe? Which receive honor one of another, and seek not the honor that cometh from God only. Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one that accuseth you, even Moses, in whom ye trust. For had ye believed Moses, you would have believed me, for he wrote of me. But if ye believe not his writings, how shall ye believe my words? Now this was another way of Jesus saying what we're reading about with, with Jehu. You guys come to me 
I've come to you in my Father's name, and I don't receive honor from you, and you don't believe me. But if someone else comes in their name and says, hey, here's a good master, you believe him. You come in your own name, people give you honor as a master. But you don't give me honor, and the reason is you don't have the love of God in you. They've got the love of self, don't they? Love of something else, but not the love of God. And it's ironic that Jesus would say, you have one that accuses you, and that's Moses. Now, Moses trusted in the Lord for salvation. Moses looked ahead to what God said he would do when he would send his son. He said, another lawgiver will not depart from his feet till Shiloh be come. Among the many things Jesus taught in that meaty passage from John, he taught that those unbelieving Jews would receive many masters who came in their own names, but they would not receive him when he came in his father's name. And it would be a good thing for the Jezreelite men in our passage to receive the one, Jehu, who comes in the name of the Lord, than to give and receive honor among themselves, including these sons of Ahab, to say, I want to keep this son of Ahab alive, for he is my master. Verse 7, And it came to pass, when the letter came to them, that they took the king's sons and slew seventy persons. That's all of them, isn't it? And put their heads in baskets and sent him them to Jezreel. Notice that everyone of the men obeyed the command. From our text, it doesn't appear that anyone fought back or resisted or hesitated. And I may suggest to you that based on what we know about Ahab, those 70 sons of his probably treated those great men and servants as poorly as Ahab treated his own and probably as poorly as Jezebel treated hers. His parents, or these men's parents, were the ones who taught them how to treat people. When our little girls were, from the time they were infants on up, we loved them, we spoke kindly to them, we disciplined them when they needed that, and then we went right back to being as nice as we could. We taught them to be sweet, to be sweet to each other, to be sweet to other people. And we're not perfect parents, but do you know why we did that? So that when we pass off the scene or when they grow up and have their own families, they'll be sweet to other people and they'll teach their children to do the same thing. It's a lot more fun to be around somebody who's sweet than somebody who's just cantankerous, isn't it? Or selfish or a bully or, or whatever it may be. And we didn't do that perfectly, but that was why we did it. What if we had taught our children that... If somebody doesn't look like us, don't you talk to them. If they don't have as much money as we do, don't you associate with them. If they live over here or over there, you know, if their dad works in the labor industry and he's not high and mighty like we are, don't you talk to them. If we'd have taught them that from their childhood, they would have treated people like that and learned a lot of hard lessons about that kind of behavior. So what examples did these sons of Ahab go by. Most likely what their mother and dad taught them. But whatever the case, these great men around them were willing to behead their own masters at the command of Jehu. You know, before you were saved, Satan reigned over you by sin, through sin. 
Romans chapter 5, verses 20 through 21. Romans 5, 20 through 21 says, Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. But where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. Listen to this. That as, as sin hath reigned unto death. Who did it reign over? It reigned over you. It reigned over me. Even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. So when we accept the reign, the rulership, the mastery of grace through the righteousness of Christ, we throw off the unrighteousness of sin, that unrighteous reign of sin. And when that happens, that's called salvation, not treason. We don't owe Satan anything after we're saved. Nothing. We don't have to give him a hat tip. We don't have to do what he wants on certain days of the week. We owe him nothing because he doesn't reign over us, whereas he used to reign over us. These men of Jezreel threw off the unrighteous reign of their masters, didn't they? They did it in favor of submitting to the righteous rule of Jehu in this matter. And they cut those men's heads off. That was it. They no longer had those men as their heads. Those men could not be their heads, their masters anymore. It must be Jehu. And then down in verse 8. And there came a messenger and told him, that is, they told Jehu, saying, They have brought the heads of the king's sons. And he said, Lay ye them in two heaps at the entering in of the gate until the morning. Seventy heads in two piles. I know it's gross, but that's what they did. Seventy heads in two piles. Israel served Babylon in, under the judgment of God. They served Babylon for 70 years. In Daniel chapter 9 and verse 24, Daniel 9 verse 24, it says, Seventy weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city to finish the transgression and to make an end of sins and to make reconciliation for iniquity and to bring in everlasting righteousness and to seal up the vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy. There's a lot there. I won't try to teach the verse. I'm showing you where the number 70 is used in the Bible. And we've also learned about the number 2. So we have the number 70, which is associated with complete judgment. And then we have the number 2. Anybody remember what the number 2 is associated with in the Bible? A witness. In the mouth of two or three witnesses, let every word be established. Jesus sent the disciples out two by two. Witness. So the laying of 70 heads in two heaps was a witness of the complete and righteous judgment of God upon the house of Ahab. Now, what a great testimony. There they are, all 70, separated into two heaps. Now verse 9, And it came to pass in the morning that he, that's Jehu, went out and stood and said to all the people, Ye be righteous. Behold, I conspired against my master and slew him. But who slew all these? Now, let me tell you, when I read this verse, I had to read it uh, several times. It's a mysterious verse to me. 
like some of them have been in, in the study of the Bible. And, and I don't run away from them. I run to them. I say, oh, Lord, help me to understand this one. You have to slow down. And so Jehu here called these people righteous. He admitted slaying his own master. And then he said, who slew all these? Now, we know Jehu's mission was righteous. This is just some deduction, deductive reasoning I had to use to, to try to arrive at an answer. We know his mission was righteous because God sent him on it. He anointed him to be king over Israel. He sent him on this mission to cut off the house of Ahab. So that's one thing we know from prior study. And we know those who slew Ahab's sons were righteous in doing so because God said he would cut off the house of Ahab. Now, I am aware that God also uses the unrighteous acts of men to accomplish his greater purposes. I mean, after all, he allowed Satan to sorely afflict Job, causing the death of all of his children, all but four of his servants, his wife to curse him, his cattle and sheep and all those to be burned up and stolen by the Sabaeans, and Job to be afflicted with those boils from head to toe. God allowed all that for a greater purpose. And when you study the book of Job, you see what that is. So I'm aware that God will allow the unrighteous acts of men and of Satan to accomplish his greater purpose. When Jehu asked, who slew all these? My suggestion here is that he is telling the people that whoever slayed these 70 were righteous. They had done the right thing as evidenced by what Jehu says in the next verse. So let's look at it while we have a couple of minutes remaining. Jehu continues speaking in verse 10. Know now that there shall fall unto the earth nothing of the word of the Lord which the Lord spake concerning the house of Ahab for or because the Lord hath done that which he spake by his servant Elijah. So from what I said about the prior verse, I think we may be able to conclude here that God responded to the killing of Ahab's sons by withholding something bad from Jezreel. If God were displeased with this, he would have brought more, not less judgment upon Israel. Jehu would have said, you guys messed up now. God is really going to pour it out on you. He didn't say that. He said, in fact, God is going to hold back some of the things that were in store. After all, what did God said he would do when he said he would cut off these sons of Ahab? 1 Kings 21, 29, we, we back up a little bit. 1 Kings 21, 29, this is the Lord speaking to Elijah. Seest? Thou, how Ahab humbleth himself before me, because he humbleth himself before me, I will not bring the evil in his days, but in his son's days will I bring the evil upon this house. Now, we don't know fully what God meant by I will bring the evil upon his house. You may say, well, all of his sons were killed. Yeah, okay. But there were other things that could have been done. God could have set the whole city on fire. He could have caused an earthquake to swallow up every living creature within 100 miles. I mean, he could have done a lot of things, but he didn't. 
But there was something he had in store for Jezreel or even all of Israel that he did not do because in these acts that we read about, his prophecy was fulfilled against the house of Ahab on that day. And with that, we'll wait till next week to wrap up that grisly scene of the complete judgment of the house of Ahab. Let's be dismissed in prayer. Father, we're thankful for your word. And Lord, though these truths are sometimes hard to hear and hard to teach, we know they're good for us. And we know that they accomplish the purpose you have in building us up in the faith, edifying us, teaching us about the holiness of God and about how we need you as our one and only head. And as we go into the next hour, Lord, I pray that all who should be here will come and be attentive, not distracted by the cares of the world, and that as we're fed through the preaching of your word, we'll grow thereby and be able to be a light in the places where we live and work. In Jesus' name, amen.